Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54. The great thing about having a barbecue lunch is that no one needs to rush off. No one needs to go home. So starting now, I figure I have about an hour and a half. (laughs) Isaiah 54. This is the word of God. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have swore not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work, And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, 
declares the Lord. Father, we would ask that you would, uh, by your Spirit, search us and know us and help us also to know ourselves and to know you better. Father, we would ask that uh, you would guide us now uh, by your word. Teach us, instruct us. Show us who you are. Show us how to respond to you. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen us, that you will give us the wisdom to draw near to you, that you will give us the comfort and strength that we need in our lives, that you will give us perspective, that you will allow us to see how enormous your compassion is for us. And then by your Spirit, lead us to yourself. Lord, I pray for uh, Graham and Erica and the ministry that they have. We thank you for them. Give them all the resources that they need uh, with the busyness of their lives. Let them see much fruit for their labor. Uh, Empower them to work efficiently and productively in the kingdom. Give them joy uh, for their labor. Give them strength equal to the task and more. And may they touch lives of students who will radically change the world. Uh, Lead them to the students who are hungry. Uh, Lead them to the students who are ready uh, to know you through Jesus Christ. And in your sovereign grace, we pray that you will open hearts and open minds to the gospel, and that by your Spirit you will empower and gift them. Lord, raise up a generation of, uh, of young people who surpass those of us who are older in every way, in knowledge and truth and love and purity and godliness. Raise up the greatest generation that there has ever been, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Now, this chapter begins with what was culturally probably the most difficult situation that there could be. And what you're told is scandalous and shocking and utterly unnatural which just means that if you're actually to be able to implement what this text says, it can only be because God is doing a supernatural work in your life. Sing, barren woman. Shout for joy. This is not the natural response. Quite the opposite. Do you believe that God can actually fulfill his promises and do more than you can ever imagine, not just in your circumstances, but despite them? Can God bring life out of death? That's the big question in Genesis. Can God continue to bring life out of barrenness, death, and futility? More are the children of the desolate woman than her who has a husband, says the Lord. Then he says, enlarge the place of your tent. 
you know, stretch out the curtains. What you're being told is basically this. You know, the, the counter, it's so counterintuitive. You, you find out from the doctor that you're not going to have children. And God sends the prophet to say, go buy a house with more bedrooms. You need, you need more room, not less room. Because you're going to have more descendants than you can count. You see, it doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't. It doesn't make any more sense than God telling Abraham and Sarah, when they're past the age of childbearing, you are going to have a son who's going to be my covenant child. None of that makes any sense at all. When God says, I will, through your seed, I will bless all the nations of the earth. Through you, there's going to be someone. Through your seed, through your body, there's going to come someone into the world who's going to bless all of the world. That makes no sense to Abraham and Sarah at all. But it's God's covenantal plan. What Jerusalem is being told here is despite your circumstances, God is going to continue with his covenant plan that your descendants will be, will be so great they can't be counted. They'll spread out to the right and to the left. They'll dispossess nations. They'll settle in desolate cities. God is going to do something supernaturally to bring life and abundance spiritually in and through you. He is going to fulfill his covenant promises to Abraham. And it doesn't look like there's any way that that's possible. But God is going to do it. And God is going to take a situation of natural grief and mourning, and properly so, and he is going to transform it so that no matter what, you will be able to shout for joy when you see what God does in and through you. That's the promise of this text. So, do not be afraid you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated because your life is under the full blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, ultimately fulfilled in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. Every blessing there is, is yours. So you will not be humiliated. You will not be disgraced. Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. Trust the Lord. You will forget the shame of your youth. Remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. Why? For your maker is your husband. God has... made people out of nothing for the purpose of entering into intimate relationship with them. God created the universe out of nothing, ex nihilo. He created the world as a home, as a habitat, as an environment for his image bearers to live in. Why did he do that? Why did God create human beings? Well, there are multiple reasons, but here, one of the ones that's implicit is that God has created people to marry them. Now, that's an, an, that's an analogy, of course. In fact, 
one of the glories of the analogy is that the reality is more, not less, than the human analog. That is, what God does with His people, the covenant God has with His people, the, the love and intimacy that God has with His people, when this is consummated in, in the Messianic wedding feast, in the new heavens and new earth, when the, Lord, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, the relationship that we will have with God, the relationship that the church has with Jesus Christ, ma- makes any human marriage look like nothing and it pales into such great insignificance. So it's not like, you know, we, we take this relationship and, and we hope that our relationship with God is, is something like it. It's that our relationship with God, He is our maker. He is our husband. He has made us and redeemed us to enter into an intimate union with us. That's the real relationship of which marriage is the faintest whisper at its best. the real relationship that we were created for was our relationship with God. And it's eternal. And it lasts forever. And the new heavens and new earth, it's perfect. That's what we were made for. Your maker is your husband. In case you don't know his name, it's the Lord of hosts. That is the omnipotent God who rules the army of heaven. He can probably protect you. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. That is, this great holy God from Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. He is the one high and exalted. He's the one who has entered into a relationship with you by redeeming you, by purchasing you. And in case, you, in case you know, that's not enough, you know, your Creator, the Lord Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, He's also called uh, the God of all the earth. Uh, you, you, you're not... You're not having your, your, your childhood fairy tale romance of, of marrying a, you know, a dashing prince or something along those lines. You're marrying God. Not, not a prince, not a king, not an emperor, not someone rich and famous in human terms. It's God of all the earth. He's made you for the purpose of entering into a relationship with you. The Lord says that he has deep compassion. Verse 8, it says, I hid my face for a moment because of the sin of the people with everlasting kindness or with chesed. This rich Hebrew term that we can't actually translate into English. We don't have any English equivalents in terms of a one-word-to-word correspondence. So we can only get at chesed through, through multiple English phrases and terms, and we try to be sensitive to context and translating into Hebrew and all of the rest. Here it's everlasting kindness. Or you could translate it, actually, uh, because of the semantic range of chesed, when you're trying to bring it over into English, you, know, you could translate this as, as eternal love, that, that God has, has he's, he's, he's blessed us with, a, with an eternal love. His compassion for us is constrained by this everlasting kindness or, or mercy or tenderness or love at its very best, covenant fidelity, covenant faithfulness. All of these sort of collection of terms surrounds this one Hebrew word. It lasts forever. I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. But as he purchases us, he, he buys us out of slavery and sin and shame and death because of his great everlasting kindness or mercy or love and boundless compassion. He is the Lord, our Redeemer. Now, all of this, if you're being thoughtful, should remind you of one particular Old Testament story. 
where you also have the sort of collocation of, of barrenness, widowhood, destitution, redemption, marriage. And that's, of course, the story of Ruth. You have all of these lines coming together in, in the story of Ruth when her kinsman redeemer Boaz comes along, and, and Boaz loves her in compassion and mercy, uh, loves her and marries her. And then through their union, you have King David. And through David and the Davidic covenant in his line, you have Jesus Christ. So you have that reference floating around in the back of your mind, Ruth and Boaz. But not only that, there's another one that God has for you, and that's Noah. This, to me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have swore not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed. Of course, it, it, even for us, you know, hills and mountains are, are symbols of, of stability and permanence. Uh, you know, this culture, I mean, this, is, this is before, you know, dynamite. Right? This, is the, this is before uh, superhighways. And, and so you, a mountain is just there. Uh, it's never going to happen. No, nothing's ever going to happen until the end of the age when they're all removed. And so God says, so the mountains will be shaken and the hills will be removed. Uh, there, the, nothing could ever move these things. But even if that were to be the case, yet my unfailing has said, for you will not be shaken. That is, again, this word comes up again, verse 8 and verse 10. My covenant love for you will never be shaken, even if the whole globe is in turmoil, even if the the mountains give way, even if the ocean dries up, even if all the stars fall from the sky, my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. Because this is like the days of Noah, where I pronounce that I have a covenant of peace, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Covenant peace unfailing love, despite our rebellion, despite our waywardness, despite our sin, God has created us to enter into a loving, intimate union with Him. And to achieve that, He makes us, He redeems us, He calls us, He has compassion on us, He enters into covenant with us. Why? It's all grounded in His eternal, unfailing everlasting love and kindness. My covenant of peace will never be removed. And you need that because you are an afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted. God says, I see, I see the turmoil that you're in afflicted, in the middle of a storm, and no one's there to comfort you. So I will. I will come to you. Those who afflict you will stop. I will be your shelter from the storm. I will be your comforter. I will rebuild you. Now, this is not supposed to, uh, to mean, uh, all, all the next description is not supposed to mean that this is you know, good engineering, uh, but the whole idea is, is beauty and dazzling riches and splendor. 
So you're a city that's sort of abused by storms and afflictions. God says, you know what? Not only is that going to stop, I'm going to rebuild you with precious stones. You're, you're going to be you know, gem encrusted. You know, I, I'm going to build, instead of common stones, I'm going to use precious stones. I'm going to build you up wonderfully and beautifully. You're going to sparkle and dazzle in the sun. People will need you know, their polarized sunglasses. When they look at you, you're going to be shining so brightly. And the blessing here is all of your children will be taught by God. And great will be their peace. Well, whose children? The children of the barren woman in verse 1. You will have many, many children. And they will all be taught by God. And great will be their peace. They'll be established in righteousness. No tyranny, nothing to fear. Terror is removed. If anyone comes to attack you, they're going to lay down their arms and surrender to you. Why? Verse 16c, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work, and it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. In other words, God creates the person who creates the weapons. God creates the person who wields the weapons. And since that's the case, God is in control of the weapon itself. No weapon forged against you will prevail. Why? Because God controls the arms that make it and the arms that wield it. So no weapon forged against you. This is one of those rare times when, when you just feel like, One really ought to say it in King James English. Uh, No weapon forged against you shall prosper. (laughs) No matter what anyone comes against you with, they will not prosper in their attack. You will refute every tongue that accuses you. In other words, no matter what people do physically or verbally, they can attack you physically or verbally, but they will not prevail. This is a totality. It's a, it's a merism. It includes everything. Verbal and physical attack, but all will be defeated because God is the one who's in control. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is what God is going to give you as your inheritance. Total safety and peace. This is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Now, in light of these sort of stunning promises, of blessing and joy and protection, covenant with God, all of God's love. The question is then, what do you do? How do you respond? And incredibly, the picture here in chapter 55 is basically like God almost acting like a market vendor. And everyone's passing by, and he's not begging people, but he's calling people, come over here, come have what I offer you, come and talk to me, come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. And so you have all these stunning promises in chapter 54, and now God is, is, is almost begging you. He's trying to get your attention. He's waving his hands in the marketplace. Come here. You're thirsty. I have water. I have wine and milk. Why are you wasting your money on things that do not satisfy? Now, in, in hot climates, I mean, you, you think that 
that Nestle is the first one who had the idea of, of packaging up water and selling it, but not the case. You know, in a lot of hot climates, you know, for travelers, there would be people who would have you know, containers of water that they would sell. Usually, jugs you would just, uh, before they had the, knew about the germ theory of disease and hygiene, you know, you just sort of you know, dip the ladle in out of the common pot. Uh, but, you know, you'd still pay for water. Now, just, just here's, a, here's a free travel tip for you. If you're ever in a remote area in Africa, do not buy the water in the Ziploc plastic bags. It's not a good idea. Uh, but you, know, you're, 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 you need a drink, and so, and so you're thirsty, and, and God's saying, here, come drink, come, come drink. Why spend your money on bread that doesn't satisfy? I'll give you the richest of foods, the, uh, literally the fattest foods, the most luxurious foods. Now, how many of you were excited? This is, this is a, it's calisthenics. So get, your, get your pulse up just a little bit to wake you up a little bit. Raise your hand, like, like actually over your shoulder, if you were interested in following the, the run of the Toronto Raptors throughout Graham, I'm glad you're here. We, we usually don't have anyone this excited. So, so Graham. Graham was? Graham and I, who, else was, who else was following the Raptors? Be honest, put up your hand. Okay, I just want you to know, if you didn't put up your hand and you were following them, you're a liar. Just, just so you know. Uh, so let's try this one more time. How many of you were, how many were following the Raptors? Let me see. Let, let's, let's, get a, let's get a look here. All right. I was fascinated by this, actually. Fascinated. Um, not so much from the basketball storylines, but from the Canadian cultural perspective. So we end up with, it seems to me that everyone across Canada hates Toronto, but not when they have an NBA team that's doing well. And so that was fascinating to me from the beginning, is when you see a, a, a Jurassic Park. Now, Erica, you were in Montreal for a long time, right? So Jurassic Park, what would that be uh, dans les Français? Parc de Jurassic? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so you have like a Parc de Jurassic uh, in, in, Mon- in Montreal, and they're all eating you know, bagels and, and stuff and having Montreal smoked meat, or baguettes, not bagels. Baguettes is a wonderful time. And thousands of people outdoors in Montreal watching the Toronto Raptors on these you know, big screens, you know, When's the last time anyone in Montreal did nothing, did anything except hate Toronto? Like, this is incredible. You know, 59 of these parks in cities across Canada, people watching the Raptors outdoors, and it's, you know, it's bringing Canada together and all the rest. I'm like, this is actually fascinating to me because there isn't a single Canadian on the team. Uh, so it's like this, this <laughs> amazing that, like, what's uniting us in Canadian sport is, like, the success of a completely non-Canadian group of athletes, um, whereas we actually have people who, who dominate their respective sports, like our Canadian women's Olympic hockey team, and, and that doesn't polarize our nation, or you have the absolute you know, exquisite brilliance of a Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer uh, dominating the world, but that doesn't polarize Canada. I mean, we even have the profundity and lyrical ability of Justin Bieber, and that doesn't bring the nation together. I mean, the Raptors have Drake, so that is hard to compete with, with him, of course, but you put all of this together, and you go, what is going on? This is a cultural phenomenon. So then, they win. 
because they were the best team once the other team's best players were hurt. And so they become the champions, you know, well, which is great for us. And I started going, I'm going to go to TSN, the, the sports network you know, website. I'm going to track their coverage of this. So the Raptors win 10 days ago. The next day, everything is, you know, we won, we won, as if, like, we actually were shooting the basket. You know, we won, good for Canada, good for us. The next day is kind of tailing off, and so they're looking for news stories. So there's sort of, like, there's, like, the interview with, you know, the guy who was on the bench who never played a minute. Like, they interview his third cousin about his, you know, childhood and things like that. They're looking for stories to keep this going. Then it's about the parade. The parade was news. Um, would you, Were you guys... Wow, that looked like it was something else. I can't even imagine. Pity the people who like, had to use the bathroom or needed a, you know, a sandwich or something in the crush of that crowd. It's unbelievable. So you watch that, that's news. Then the next day's reporting is about the, the parade. And then, that many days later, is Kawhi Leonard going to stay in free agency? All the rumors. Then it's, Looks like the LA Clippers have a leg up on, in the Kawhi free agency thing. Then it's NBA draft. Then it's someone pleading with Toronto, leave Kawhi Leonard alone. If you push him too much, he'll leave. Like, give him some space. And the whole point is that within about four days, the entire shift was, can we win next year too? A little blip of excitement. That's not going to satisfy. It's immediately already, if Kawhi comes back, are we the favorites next year? Can we win next year too? Apparently a Raptors NBA championship is a nice bit of excitement. But if you're hanging your life's joy on it, it's, it's pretty transient. It's pretty temporal. It's bread that doesn't satisfy. It's looking for fulfillment. And that's, and that's not just not the raptors. I mean, that, that's, that's anything. Material goods, entertainment, you know, power, advancement. I mean, the reality is probably most of us um, who, who you know, have, have earned a, a university degree or two, you, know, you, you graduate, and at that moment you think, this is, this is great, oh, you know, but that, that accomplishment's over. You can't, you can't coast the rest of your life on, on that or, or whatever. I mean, whatever it is that we look for to, to make us someone, these goals that we work for, you, you get the recognition and then, it, and then it's gone. You're looking for something else or for a repetition of it. God calls you like he called the Samaritan woman at the well when Jesus also offers her something to drink. God's calling you to living water that will actually satisfy you. And nothing else will. Nothing else will. Not sports, not movies, not music, not money, not pleasure, nothing. Not even relationships with human beings. Nothing will ultimately satisfy you because you were designed to find satisfaction only in relationship with your maker. So it's impossible otherwise. It's impossible to find joy. And the great and the amazing thing about this is that God He's calling us, though. He's calling us into it. Come on. And you say, but I don't have any money. You don't need money. God's giving it away. 
And this is one of the most amazing things about God's love and eternal life is that there's a sense in which he can't give it away. You know, he's enticing people. He's calling people. You can almost see this, this, this vision of, of the vendor in the marketplace. And people just keep walking by. They're just ignoring him. And he's holding in his hands, pleading with them, come, stop wasting your money. Stop wasting your effort. Come and find satisfaction in me. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to me because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. What God is saying is, saying, listen, just listen to me. Just, just, just pay attention. This is all free. It's, it's too good to be true, except that it's not. I'll give you the covenant with David. I'll give you everlasting blessing. I will give you life eternal. Just listen to me and live. You'll have the everlasting covenant. My faithful has said, my faithful love, it's for you. Nations will come to you. Just, just come to me yourself. I will endow you with splendor. Now that's God calling. Now you have a shift towards the human responsibility. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Now, the funny thing is, if, you, if you're reading this text properly, notice it doesn't start in verse 1 of chapter 55 with, seek the Lord while he may be found. Then later you find that God's calling you. This starts with God. It's not hard to find the God who is standing up, waving his arms, calling to you. It's hard to ignore him. And Romans 1 teaches us that we do a pretty good job suppressing the truth of God that we actually have, but it keeps bubbling up in all kinds of ways. You can't really suppress it. You, have, you know there's a God. And so here God is, he, he's, is in a sense, he's, he's in your face. He's, he's calling you, come, come, come. And then you're told, seek him. But he's not playing hide and seek with you. He's right there. You just need to go to him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Now, there's an implicit in that that God's calling you now. God is speaking. God is waving his arms and raising his voice now. But this may not be forever. Seek him while he's available. Seek him while he's calling. To do that, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Turn away from your wickedness. Turn to God. It's a great hymn. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Uh, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with it. It's got a great rolling bass line that goes through it. Jake, you know that one. Yeah, we should, we should sing it. Do you want to sing it right now? No, not from here. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. Great hymn. You have time. You can, you can Google all these things. Just, just look it up on the internet. Uh, who is a pardoning God like thee? way of expressing the truth. God will pardon you. God will come to you. God will, will save you, and he will f- do so freely. Why? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, verses 8 and 9 we're familiar with. Verses 8 and 9 get quoted a lot. The text is not just saying, look, God knows more than you do. 
His ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. Well, of course he knows more than we do. We're not that bright. It's also not saying, though, that God's ways are just really mysterious. That's usually when these verses get quoted. Something happens that we can't possibly fathom, that we can't get to the end of, that makes no sense. And someone will say, well, don't worry. God's ways aren't our ways. God's thoughts aren't our thoughts. That's that's not helpful in that context. It's true, but it's just not helpful. But notice it begins with the word for. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. For is one of those logical connector words, which means you can't possibly understand what verse 8 and 9 means unless you understand what was just said. You don't start with for my thoughts are not your thoughts. What's the context? And the context here is what? Mercy, grace, and pardon. In other words, for my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. It's not saying you can't comprehend me. It's saying you would never have dreamed up forgiveness and grace on your own. Every other religion drives on the basis of meriting God's forgiveness through works. Or at least positioning yourself in a spot where you can get his top up of mercy. So it's a combination of what you do and what God does. God's merciful. He accepts me, but I have to work really hard for it. Here, it's the wicked who saved. It's the unrighteous who saved. All they have to do is come to God who's giving away eternal life for free. That's all they have to do. Forsake your evil ways. Come to God. Receive the food and drink that he has for you. Live eternally because who is a pardoning God like thee and who has grace so rich and free? And who has grace so rich and free? Chorus of that hymn. No one. God alone. The way he approaches us, his terms are not our terms. Our terms are, God, I might need a little bit of a hand up, but I'll merit it. I'll merit the rest. God says, no, it's 100% grace. It's 100% mercy, 100% pardon, because I am a loving, compassionate, forgiving, pardoning God. For my ways aren't your ways. Your way is merit and earning it. My way, so much higher than yours, as high as the heavens are above the earth, my way is grace. My thoughts are thoughts of infinite, compassionate love and pardon. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Now, at, at the risk of drawing down some ire and wrath from Phyllis Moffat, I am just going to mention um, that in the last number of weeks uh, with, with Sam and, and also with Jake uh, visiting Phyllis and, and Murray, uh, one of the things that Murray has, has said uh, repeatedly, and hopefully I'm not telling tales out of school, uh, but often we've been visiting, I think every time actually we've been visiting, Murray has, has mentioned verse 11 of, of chapter 55. Uh, Murray is highly involved with the Gideons, has been talking a lot about the importance of the Word of God and, and testifying to the Word of God and distributing the Word of God and, and sharing stories with us of some of the blessings they've seen through that. And so one of the verses that he often quotes is, is this verse, so is my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me void. It will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. 
there is a power in the Word of God. Again, in this culture where they're selling water, rain and snow are life-giving necessities. Now, they are here, too. We just take them for granted. And also with our, with our technology and irrigation, you know, we have, a, we have a bit of hot summer. It's usually pretty, it's, it's, it's okay. In this culture, if you don't have rain, you have death. And God's Word is that life-giving rain and snow that provides for, for budding and flourishing harvests of fruitfulness. That's God's Word. My Word will not return to me empty. My Word will accomplish. And no, this is very, very important. The text does not say, God does not say, my word will accomplish the purpose for which you are using it. It will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. And so here we have this promise. God who is calling out to people, come, come to me, come to eternal life. God's word goes out. It does not come back empty. It produces fruit and an abundant righteousness and a harvest of joy. So when you come to God, when you hear his word and you come to him, when it accomplishes the purposes for which God sent him, when you have eternal life and enter into this covenant, this intimate union with God, the, 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 the sort of the response or the situation you find yourself in, it's like being in creation and all of creation is celebrating. Everything is filled with joy. You're filled with joy. The world is, expound, is exploding in joy. You, you, you come to God. You, you receive all of these blessings. You hear the word of God and receive it. And you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. The sign of entering into this consummated relationship with God is that you were filled with joy and you're placed in, a, in an environment of pure joy. And it lasts forever. The sign of this, this wonderful salvation and pardon of God is precisely this eternal environment of joy and peace and love. Where will we have that? Well, there's a sense in which you enter into it when you begin to follow Christ. There's another sense in which it awaits the consummation of the new heavens and new earth. A purified home of righteousness, a purified environment in which even I think discernibly the grass and the trees will be praising God. Not with physical voice. They still won't have vocal cords. They'll still be species-specific. But you'll tell just by the way it is, just by the way that the leaves move in the air, that tree is glorifying God. Just by existing the way He wants it to. We won't, we won't be like Wordsworth, and ascribe sort of a, a, a natural spirit running through everything. We won't be semi-pantheists, uh, but we'll see how inanimate creation glorifies and praises God. And we will be at the center of joy, surrounded by resounding praise of creation, and all the focus will be on our Maker, our Husband, our Redeemer. And on that day, you will be incapable of not shouting for joy. You won't be able to hold it in. Here at Crestwick, 
you are exceptionally well-practiced at holding in your expressions of joy. (laughs) But not then. Not then. Whether you like it or not, you're going to be happy. (laughs) You are going to praise God, and you are going to just be thrilled to see what God has done. So seek Him today while He may be found. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. Don't ignore His voice. He calls to you. Seek Him and find eternal joy. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song. Lord, we thank you that you are life, that life is in you, and that you also freely share your life with us, uh, that we can live eternally. Father, I pray that you will uh, draw us to yourself. I pray that uh, for all those who stay uh, for Uh, lunch here. I pray that you'll bless our time in fellowship. I pray that you'll bless the food to our bodies. uh, And may this be a time which is pleasing and honoring to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.